We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount today, church family, with a message entitled, What Jesus Has to Say About Divorce. We're going to cover the subject thoroughly. When you leave here, you may say that you learned some things about divorce that you didn't really uh, want to know, or it's more than you wanted to know, more than you bargained for, but we're going to, we're going to cover the topic thoroughly today. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We're also going to look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to also look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to see what Paul read. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Jesus speaking here. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then from Matthew chapter 19, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Would you please be seated? My biological father, Earl, abandoned my mother and me when I was six weeks old. I saw him a few times thereafter. It was never pleasant or what you might call normal. He seemed to always be intoxicated, and he was an abusive man. He was also a serial womanizer who married and left several other women over the course of his lifetime. And as a result, I have several half-brothers and half-sisters whom I've never met. My mother raised me as a single mom, until she married my stepfather, Bill, when I was 12, which started out well, but after a couple of years, alcoholism consumed him, and he became highly abusive to both of us. They divorced about the time I graduated from high school, but not before they had my half-brother, Shane. My mother, who struggled with depression and alcoholism, took her own life at the age of 59 in 1996. Bill wound up taking his own life in 2008. Shane became an alcoholic and was never able to get his life together. In fact, he died in a homeless encampment outside Birmingham, Alabama in 2016. God has always been good to me. He's always been faithful to me. And with every breath of my life, I will praise Him. And I thank God. I thank my mother... And my wife, her father, who was a good and godly man, several coaches whom I played for or coached under, and a couple of pastors who 
I had the privilege of knowing for helping me each in different ways to overcome the lack of a godly and good father. Today's the day we set aside to celebrate fathers and, and fatherhood in general, and for most of us there is much to celebrate, but we need to be aware that it is not necessarily a day of celebration for those who have either lost their father, fathers who have lost children, children whose father was absent or abusive or worse, and, and, and yet, speaking as one of those, even for those for whom this day is a painful struggle, for those for whom today is a bittersweet experience, they would yet have us recognize and be thankful for fathers and for fatherhood. Church family, we, we love our mothers, amen? And, and, and we celebrate our mothers, but we need to see how critical godly fatherhood is. The research is in, and it's overwhelming. Uh, according to a recent study, the flight of resident fatherhood from the home over the past 60 years may offer the best explanation for the collapse of Christianity in the United States over much of the last 40 years. The conclusion, that conclusion, is drawn from the results of a nationwide survey of 19,000 church attendees. And the survey found this, a startling statistic, I thought, 80% of all church attendees in the United States grew up in a home with both biological parents. It's a trend that held up across age groups. It was visible from the oldest Gen C to the youngest baby boomers. In 1960, our nation began to see an explosive growth in non-marital births and, and divorce, and it had the effect on shrinking the number of children who had a, a father in, in the home, leading to a, a multitude of negative effects on those children, including mental health issues, poverty, low educational outcomes, all because dad was not in the home. And it also turns out that it has a big impact on the likelihood of children experiencing faith. Uh, the Oxford University Press did a four-decade-long study, followed 350 families and over 3,000 people to try to understand the reasons behind those who effectively passed on their faith to their children. And they found this. Clearly, the quality of the child's relationship with his or her father is important for the internalization of the parent's religious tradition, beliefs, and practices. Among evangelical fathers, there is a 25-point difference in those who are emotionally close to their fathers and those who are not when it comes to following the faith of their father. Research is in, and it's overwhelming. And it's revealing that the failure for a child to form a healthy attachment to his or her father often manifests itself in the later loss of faith, interest in New Age spirituality, or the manifestation of agnosticism, or even atheism. So what has the church had to say about divorce? In the past, too often the church has taken a judgmental position against divorce, I fear. And that's, that's the easy way out, though. And the result is that both divorce and those who have been divorced receive condemnation, both the sin and, and the sinner. And I get it, that's simpler. It's a cleaner way to handle the situation. Where we can take this so-called high road and we can just wash our hands and, and turn our backs, all the while preaching against divorce from our, our lofty platforms. And we don't have to concern ourselves with getting our hands dirty and going through the messy struggle of divorce with people who are hurt 
and need love and acceptance more than anything else. So some churches, in their passion to prevent divorce, and I'm talking about good, well-meaning people and good, God-fearing churches, fall into judgmentalism by raising the biblical standard when it comes to divorce. They say there should be no divorce for anybody, for any reason, and absolutely no remarriage for anyone at any time, period. And that simplifies things. But the problem with that is for all their good intentions, they've taken a, taken a biblically incorrect stance on divorce. And then coming at things from the other perspective, there are those, again, well-intentioned people who love the Lord in good churches, godly churches, who look at the problem of divorce, and they say, hey, we just got to remember that these are real people involved here, and they're just like us, the children and parents who are being hurt. And so what we need to do above all else it's just to love them and minister to them regardless of the circumstances of the divorce. Accept them. Now that church has lowered the standard so everyone can fit into their view of how the church deals or ought to deal with divorce. Forgiveness is what they stress. And listen, make no mistake about it, forgiveness is foundational to our stance, to the church's stance on divorce. But the church must above all else obey God's word on the matter. And that means the church cannot lower her standards to those of the world when it comes to marriage and divorce. And churches that do so have also taken an incorrect stance. So while it's important to, to carefully consider what the church has to say about divorce, we must always make sure that, we, that what we hear matches up with what God's word has to say about divorce. And certainly as Christians, we ought to approach those who have been involved in divorce with grace and empathy and support. We ought to provide resources and counseling and, and care for individuals and families who are going through divorce, helping them to heal and find restoration, both with God and with their fellow believers and hopefully with their estranged spouse. And it's important that we understand what the church is saying. We must ask what the Bible has to say. Does God have a word for the tragedy of divorce? And of course, the answer is yes, He does. But as always, it's a redemptive word because He's always, first and foremost, God is, about redemption, a redeeming word for those who have been scarred by divorce. And He also shares a strong statement of support for those seeking to build strong Christian marriage. Beloved, it is God's desire not only to minister to those who have experienced divorce in their lives, but, but to share relevant teaching for those who are married that it might strengthen their marriage. God not only diagnoses the illness, He provides the cure. So we need to hear the Word today about what, God ha what the Word has to say about divorce. But before we do that, I want us to set a little context. I want to take a, a look at the context of Jesus' day. So what did the religious establishment of Jesus' day have to say? Theologians tell us there were two main schools of thought. Many of you have heard this already. Two main schools of thought in Jesus' day concerning divorce, and they were disseminated by two prominent rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shema. Now, Rabbi Shema taught that divorce was allowed only in the case of some sexual impropriety. His was the stricter position. Again, we're talking about the context of Jesus' day. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, had a more liberal view, and he taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If she burned his bagel, if she oversalted his locks, if she, if she spoke disparagingly about his parents or even unbraided her hair in public, for any of that or similar 
offenses, a man could divorce his wife, and she had no recourse, church family. That position, the more liberal position of Rabbi Hillel, allowing for divorce almost any, on almost any grounds, was the position that prevailed in Jesus' day. And the religious leaders wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted Him to be viewed as unfavorable by the crowd. And so they set out to trap Him. And we see this in a passage recorded that we read earlier from Matthew chapter 19. And, and perhaps they had been there for the Sermon on the Mount, so they already knew He's never going to agree with that more liberal view of the day. But this attempt of the religious leaders to ensnare Jesus was off base from the start because it involved a misinterpretation of the Scripture they were quoting. Here's from Deuteronomy 24, and it's this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Now the religious leaders, the problem was they viewed this, interpreted this verse as a commandment of God. And they said to him, Again, we're back in Matthew 19 now, verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, the, the real issue was what was that indecency? What was that thing that was improper, that was displeasing her husband? Shema, Rabbi Shema said it was sexual impropriety. Hallel said it could be for any reason, anything the husband didn't like, any offense. There, there was another rabbi who was of Hillel's school, his name was Rabbi Akaba. he took things even further and said that her indecency could mean that a man could divorce his wife when he found another woman who he thought was more beautiful than she was. Such was the climate in Jesus' day when it came to divorce. So we see in Matthew 19... The religious leaders testing Jesus. They're hoping that he would, he would hurt his popularity with the people by taking a stance on divorce that was out of favor with the culture. And you can bet that everyone was within earshot, was, was anxiously awaiting how he might respond. So they confronted him with what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24. And then Jesus did what Jesus is so skilled at doing. He cut right to the heart of the matter. And he said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So instead of arguing with the scribes about what constituted indecency, he told them why God wrote the commandment that they were quoting from Deuteronomy 24. Jesus said it was because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. That was why God permitted divorce at all. Men's hearts had become hard, and they were divorcing their wives for virtually any reason at all. And now... Remember, remember, wives couldn't divorce their husbands. They had no rights when it came to marriage. So, so Moses wrote that law concerning the writing of a bill of divorcement as a protection somewhat for the women. Without that bill of rights, she had no at all, no rights at all. So it's because of the mercy of, of God in the face of the hardness of the human heart that divorce was given, the instruction about divorce was given in the first place. Problem was, the religious leaders had taken this as a definitive right of man to divorce their wives whenever they wanted to. Now Jesus, if we back up in this conversation in Matthew 19, has already gone deeper into the divine plan for marriage by going back to the beginning of the Bible for a lesson. 
Verses 4 through 6, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and hold fast, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God takes them and us back to the, to the fundamental principle for marriage given at creation. And you know the story. God created one man and one woman. God cre- didn't create two men. It wasn't Adam and Steve. He didn't create two women. It wasn't Alice and Eve. No, no, God didn't create any extras in case Adam and Eve didn't work out. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Helen and Steve. It was just Adam and Eve. One man and one woman. That was God's original plan. And despite what our culture trumpets today, that remains His desire for marriage. God's fundamental, unchanging plan is for one man to be married to one woman until they are parted by death. Now, what else does the Bible have to say about divorce? Again, in verse 32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus does grant legitimate grounds for divorce there. We see that also in that passage we read in Matthew chapter 19. Now you've got to remember, back in the Old Testament, adultery carried with it the penalty of death. So it's not hard, it's not hard to, to see that no one would have argued about whether marital unfaithfulness was just grounds for divorce or not. I mean, they used to kill them. So so we see there are biblical exceptions. Jesus gives us one here, marital infidelity. Just as under the original law where adultery was punished by death and that broke the bonds of matrimony, released the husband. Remember, this only applied to men. Women didn't have any rights. So, So marital unfaithfulness by adultery could do the same thing. Notice I said could. Because Jesus never commanded divorce for unfaithfulness. He only said it was permissible. What Jesus is clearly saying here is that if a man divorces his wife for anything less than adultery, he then causes her and himself to be open to the commission of adultery. Now, is there anything else the Bible has to say about divorce and marriage? Well, there is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, another very significant passage of Scripture that deals with divorce and remarriage. So let's take a, a close look at that one in chapter 7 of the first, of first Corinthians, verses 8 through 15. Now remember, Paul here in this passage is writing to Christians. Okay, And the first group that he addresses are single people. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what he's saying here is that if you're single and you can stay single, do so. That's a good thing. But but if if you're being overcome by your passions and you, you feel a need to marry, then it's okay to marry as well, obviously. And then Paul addresses two Christians married to one another, beginning in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Now, now. Paul's raising the standard here in our text. We're going to see from what Jesus had earlier taught. But notice twice he says, Not I, but the Lord. He wants to make it clear to all of us that God has instructed him by the Holy Spirit to write what he's writing. 
To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So here we have two Christians married to one another. And Paul simply says, remain together. There's no reason to leave. If there's no unfaithfulness, stay together. And even if there is, that doesn't mean you have to divorce. It's interesting that he does seem to make a provision here, at least implicitly, for a separation between a husband and a wife. Now, at the risk of making an argument from omission, let me just say the Bible nowhere teaches that the wife has an obligation to stay in a home where an abusive man threatens her physical welfare or that of her children. She's either to be... But if she does leave in that situation, she's either to be reconciled to her husband or to remain unmarried. There is no biblical reason why two Christians must divorce. Lastly, Paul speaks to the mixed marriage. He's talking to a Christian married to a non-Christian, and this could come about in a couple of ways. The one we're most familiar with is two unbelievers get married, perhaps at a young age, and then later one of them becomes a believer, while the other one is not yet a believer. That's probably the most frequent way that mixed marriages occur. A second way is that a believer could marry an unbeliever in direct opposition to the Word of God. We know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, God says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Beloved, this is the command of God. He didn't put that there to make us unhappy. It's not something, it's something that He put there for our own good. God is trying to help us avoid the, 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 the misery of being locked in a marriage with someone who is fundamentally different from us, whose philosophical views are totally different from ours, whose desires and aspirations are different from ours. Young people, let me just say to you clearly here, I want to encourage you. Really, I want to plead with you. Do not be foolish enough to marry an unbeliever. Certainly, I can hear you already. With God, all things are possible. God can do something to save that person, but there is no guarantee that will happen. And you may find yourself locked in a marriage that at best causes you to question your own spirituality, potentially damaging your relationship with your Father God. Or maybe even lead you down a road of utter misery. There's a reason for the command. Paul addresses mixed marriages next, and he says, To the rest I say, and again, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They're set aside, and there's a potential for them to receive the gospel because one of their parents is saved. I'm just interpreting that verse for you right there because I know it's a bit confusing. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, the instruction is, is, is pretty clear here. 
Paul knows what Jesus had to say. And now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul expands the marital exception from uh, the exception for divorce from marital unfaithfulness to include desertion by an unbelieving partner. Yet, he says, if you are a believer married to an unbeliever, stay with them. God may save them. So he's holding out hope for that to happen. In verse 16, verse 16, Paul says, Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? In other words, he's saying, God may do something. Stay with them as long as they desire to stay with you. But then verse 15 gives us the other biblical grounds for divorce. When an unbelieving partner leaves a believer, that believer is to let their partner go. So the scripture tells us that the, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case. Bondage to what? Bondage to the law of marriage. Paul speaks of being bound by the law of her husband in Romans. And here he speaks about being released from that bondage by the desertion of an unbelieving partner. So what the Scriptures are teaching here is that Christians should stay with non-Christians as long as the non-Christian is willing. But if the non-Christian leaves the Christian and divorces him or her, then the Christian is released from that marriage biblically and is free to remarry. So to recap here, there are only three situations that free a marriage partner from marriage. The death of a marriage partner, sexual unfaithfulness by a marriage partner, and the desertion and divorce by an unbelieving marriage partner. Beloved, that is the clear teaching of Holy Scripture on divorce. But why there are those, there are those who are what about those who were divorced outside of those grounds? With all the love in my heart, let me say to those folks, we have to say that according to the Word of God, what they have done is sin against God and sin against their marriage partner. If there's possibility, they need to go and be reconciled to the one they divorced. If that's not possible, perhaps one of them's already remarried, then they have no alternative but to throw themselves at the feet of our merciful Father and repent and ask for forgiveness, as do we all when we commit any other kind of sin. But they and we should call it what it is. It's sin. At the same time, let me quickly reiterate that the sin of divorce is no different from any other sin. Sure, the earthly consequences are often sad and severe. But listen, what I'm trying to tell you is that, that divorce is not the great unpardonable, the sin of all sins. And to make it so is to commit the sin of self-righteous spiritual pride. Because, beloved, the believer who sins and falls at the feet of Jesus in genuine repentance will always find forgiveness. And we must forgive those whom God has forgiven. It's heartbreaking, but in some churches, a person can be forgiven of murder, 
But don't dare get a divorce and expect to be and, and expect to be loved and accepted and forgiven. Our gracious Father can and desperately desires to heal and restore those who have been divorced to spiritual and emotional health. He can and He will and He desires to use them in, in kingdom work, not as substandard kingdom citizens, but in the same way He uses all of us save sinners. Now I want to spend the remainder of the time that we have by bringing the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on our marriages. Paul David Tripp writes that the grace God gives you for your marriage comes with a lifetime warranty. What this means is that God will give us and keep on giving us and keep on giving us and keep on giving us everything we need to be and do what we're supposed to be and do in our marriage. But we must do it. His grace enables us, reconciles, restores, repairs marriages. His grace teaches us and changes us in our marriages. His grace gives us what we need to be able to ask for forgiveness and to forgive in our marriages. His grace grace empowers us to, to overlook minor offenses and target what's truly important in and to our marriages. His grace helps us see ourselves as we truly are and respond to what we see with greater and greater wisdom in our marriages. His grace gives us the power to resist temptation and to turn and do what's right in our marriages. His grace frees us from our our fascination with loving ourselves and and beckons us to take pleasure and joy in loving another in our marriages. His grace enables us to be good and angry at the same time in our marriages. His grace causes us to be committed to giving grace in our marriages. Brother, there's a sense in which marriage is moment by moment Moments when we're hurt and we're angry and we're exhausted or discouraged. Moments when we'll be tempted to abandon the good work God calls us to do in building and maintaining our marriage. Moments when we don't feel like loving our husband or wife. Moments when the issues we face seem too complicated, too big to overcome. Moments when it seems that, that nothing we're doing is making any difference in our marriage. Moments when it seems that we want to withdraw from our spouse rather than move toward him or her. Moments when we'll want to strike back and hurt the other the way he or she has hurt us. Moments when we want to go our own way. Moments when we'd rather scream and yell than listen and encourage. Moments when when it will seem like we're the one caring the most. We're the one working the hardest. Moments when vengeance looks more attractive than forgiveness. Moments when we just don't feel like doing the work that a good marriage demands. Beloved, it is in those hard, difficult moments that husbands and wives must choose to love and do the hard work of marriage. And it's in those moments that young marriages tend to grow and to flourish. In these difficult moments, listen, that come to every single marriage, the choice we must make is to get up, get going, 
and fight for our marriages. It's in those trying moments that we must decide that we will no longer allow hurt or anger or exhaustion or laziness or hopelessness to damage our marriage. It's in these moments that we must take seriously our calling as a Christian husband or Christian wife to stand together and do the labors of love that God calls us to do. Christian husband, Christian wife, never forget that it is in the difficult moments of marriage that the grace of God envelops us and empowers us and examples for us, enabling us to be and do what it takes for our marriage to be one that glorifies God and brings us great joy. I said I wanted to bring the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on our marriages, so understand this, believer. Jesus leaving the glories of heaven and coming to earth to live as a man modeled for us what it is like to live under the roof of someone who is totally different from ours from ourselves. Jesus suffering death on the cross made it possible for you and I to forget to experience forgiveness and to be prone to forgive in our marriages. Jesus suffering as he did in the manner that he did shows us that we can face hurt and mistreatment with wisdom and grace in our marriages. Jesus yielding to the task before him and then dying as he did shows that we can resist Resist the temptation to give in and give up and run away or quit on our marriages. Jesus enduring the scorn and humiliation from His torturers showed us that we can control our tongue. We can say only what is helpful and necessary even when we've been spoken to in ways that are not in our marriages. Jesus enduring the mockery of the trials, standing before Pilate, being nailed to the cross, shedding His blood, shows us that in hard situations, you and I have the power to say no to anger and no to exasperation and yes to gentleness and yes to self-control in our marriages. Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane and in the hours that followed shows us that we have available to us the wisdom we need to deal with things in our marriage that we didn't see coming, we didn't expect, and we don't fully understand. Jesus Suffering in love means for us, beloved, that we will never, ever be alone in our struggle to love in our marriage. He was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of love because he knew something. He knew that was the only way that you and I would ever, ever understand what it takes to love as we've been called to love. And so he made that sacrifice. Beloved, God is in the middle of the details of your marriage. And because He is, He is near. And that means that at any time, you and I can reach out for help. That means that we're never alone in our struggle. That means that in His sovereignty, God has not only determined the situations and the relationships in which we live, but He is with us in those situations and relationships. And it means He will never, ever, ever give up on us. Never. He is near us. He is for us. And He will never quit on us. The truth is that 
The foundation of a marriage that glorifies God and gives us great joy is not a great sex life. It's not financial security. It's not even adoring one another. It's adoring Him. We'll have a marriage that glorifies God and gives us great joy when we love God. Listen, when we love God more than we love ourselves. We'll have a marriage that glorifies God and gives us great joy when we quit striving to build our own little kingdoms and start seeking His above all else. We'll have a marriage that glorifies God and gives us great joy when we really do love our spouse more than we love ourselves and are willing to do the hard work that that kind of love requires. John Piper writes, Marriage will be preserved for the glory of God and shaped for the glory of God when the glory of God is more precious to us than marriage. When we can say with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, when we can say that about marriage, about our husband or wife, then that marriage will be lived to the glory of God. Beloved, do you want that kind of marriage? If so, worship God above everything else. He is preeminent, as that scripture passage we read earlier. Do the hard work of love to which He has called you and trust Him. Trust Him He's right there in the midst of your marriage. Listen, with grace in His hands. Grace that can transform you, change your heart. Beloved, we can have God-glorifying marriages filled with great joy. By His grace, we really can. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, indeed we are thankful. First and foremost, that you are our Father. You've given us the privilege of calling you Father. You've made us heirs, those of us that know your Son, Jesus Christ. Your heirs, co-heirs with your Son, Jesus Christ. You've given us the perfect example of, of what it means to be a good father. Lord, we're thankful today for our earthly fathers, for those men in our lives, even if they weren't our biological father, who helped, helped shape us and transform us and mold us and push us in the right direction. We're so thankful for men who are submitted to the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ, and who impact us for your glory and for our growth in Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray for marriages here today that are strong. They've been together 60 or more years, 50 or more years, 40 or more years. They, they've been through the toil and the turmoil and even fights and arguments, Lord God, but they've come through it all because they've kept your son Jesus Christ as the foundation for your marriage. They've, they've weathered all those storms, Lord God, and they would yet give you praise and glory even for those storms for they have made them what they are as a couple today. Father, I'm here today to pray for those who are struggling in their marriage. Nobody else might even know, Lord God. They know and you know that the communication has not been there, the, the intimacy, intimacy has not been there, that the, the love as it was before has not been there. I pray, Lord, today that what they've heard will draw them back to one another as they are drawn back to you. 
their marriage will be strengthened to become what it is that you have called it to be, that they would be the, the Christian husbands and wives that you've called them to be. Father, I want to pray for the unmarried, those who are, who are today, they're, they're, they're committed to you, they're sold out to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, they've, for whatever reason, they, they're, they're not, they've not found a spouse yet. Father, perhaps they're not even looking for a spouse. They're content, as your word says, to remain unmarried. I, I'm thankful for those men and women who are examples in our, in our church family, examples in our community. Pray that you would strengthen them, protect them, guard them against temptation, Lord God. And if it be your will that you provide that spouse for them in the days ahead. Father, we pray for children who are struggling without fathers, who have no solid male example in their life. We're thankful for mothers that raise children who work hard to do that, Lord God putting their children ahead of themselves in so many ways, on so many days. We pray you'd strengthen them, and we're, we're thankful for, for godly women who raise children alone. Lord, we're thankful for your word that teaches us so faithfully what you have to say about marriage and divorce. We hold the sanctity of marriage high, Father, and we thank you for its precious gift. It is a precious gift to us we pray that you'd help us in the coming days to apply your grace and the gospel of your son to our marriages in Jesus name we pray amen